So, sir, thanks for joining us today on Leadership Blog, which is a podcast for the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center community on topics of interest. And the topic of interest today is meeting Dr. Bill O'Brien and talking to him about his experience working with the Aeronautical Systems Division, which was a predecessor organization to the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center. So, sir, thank, thank you. Uh, welcome to Leadership Blog. Uh, if you could introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your, uh, of your family background, where you grew up, that kind of thing. <clears throat> well, my name is William R. O'Brien. I go by Bill. And I'm told I was born in Newark, New Jersey. I don't remember it, but <laughs> that's, and uh, our family lived in Newark. When I was young, I went to s several schools in Newark. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to the suburb, East Orange, New Jersey. And I went to high school in Manhattan. I went to Xavier, which was a Jesuit military school. My father thought I needed some discipline, so just going to a Jesuit school wasn't enough. It had to be a Jesuit military school. <laughs> so I commuted from East Orange to 16th Street in Manhattan daily by rail and ferry boat sometimes and mm. Hudson Tubes other times, most times. And <clears throat> when I finished at Xavier, uh, I decided that I might as well take advantage of my knowledge of the commute, so I went to Stevens on the other side of the river, on the, this side of the river, mm -hmm. yeah. And I got commissioned when I graduated from Stevens, and I went to, uh, to Ohio State, uh, and they had a lot of programs here on the base. So I got my master's uh, going part-time. They had a, a twilight program. Mm -hmm. So it was get off work an hour early and go to school and they went typical three-hour class. Yep. So. Now, now, did you take classes on the base, or were I took classes on the base uh, until I, when I was in the doctoral program. Then I had to go on campus because it's a requirement of the doctoral program to be residential. So I had an apartment in Columbus for that residential year. Mm -hmm. And when I finished the doctoral program, uh, I was kind of wondering where I should go next. And I had been to <clears throat> the UK and the continent uh, on the 
think that was the first time I went to UK on Skybolt because that was a joint program. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I went with two other colleagues and we all got permission from our wives uh, to take a little time after our business in the UK and <clears throat> we took a boat ride across the channel and <clears throat> excuse me uh, it as it happened um, the day we got there uh, was Prince and Doc and Prince and Doc was a celebration of the day that the Queen opened the session of Parliament for that year. In mm -hmm. Holland. In Holland, right. mm -hmm. yeah. And there was a, a parade, and it was like stepping back into the 16th century as the Queen rode by in her golden carriage with eight white horses drawing it. Really was amazing, and I thought it's a great place to raise a family. Yeah. You know? Let's talk about when you started work with DoD. What was your first duty station? Where did you go to? Um, it's a reminder, you know, your Army and your Navy and down at Pax and all that. Pax River. Okay. To Naval Air Test Center and. Uh, I, I worked there four years. Okay, and and what did you do when you were there? Just was it flight test or flight test? Okay, yeah, All right, yeah. I spent some time at sea on the midway. That hmm. was one of the more interesting parts of uh, my time. Right. So the midway. Now this is post World War II, not long after World War II, correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, and yeah. this is the the boat that now sits at in San Diego. In San Diego, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, <clears throat> my job on that particular cruise was uh, to measure the the takeoff and landing distances. So I had sensors uh, along the catapult, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and at the arresting wires, and uh, I must say, I hope we're not being recorded. <laughs> uh, eating at the senior officer's mess on the midway mm -hmm. was the best military meals I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Mike that uh, one of the statements I, I remember the steward saying, it's a, more steak, sir? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Navy certainly knows how to uh, fix good meals, mm -hmm. especially at that level. Um, 
So, uh, so what was the first? So you were with the army at that time, and then you transferred into the air force. Is that how that went, or no? Um, well, I started out uh, in the Army National Guard. Okay. With my first military, and uh, then I had to to be discharged when I got commissioned in the Air Force. Okay, all right. So. Oh, and so when you were at Pax River, that was, uh, um, that was with the Air Force, correct? No, that was, that was, while I was in college, I worked summers there. Oh. And then after I graduated, I went on full-time until I got activated in the Air Force, which was, Almost a year after I graduated. Okay, all right. So what year was that when you got activated in the Air Force? 1954. 54, okay, all right. Um, and so then once you got active in the Air Force, where did you go to? What was your first assignment then? Uh, Samson. Samson, okay, in upstate New York, correct? Upstate New York. Yeah. Former Navy base. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what did you do at Samson? I froze. <laughs> I went there in February. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I decided I didn't like that area in the wintertime. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your duty there? And so uh, <clears throat> I was being in-processed. Okay. So I got aptitude tests and all that sort of thing, and um, just before that happened, well, I was, uh, so I was probably in January of 54, months before I went in the Air Force, <clears throat> I was hitchhiking from New Jersey to Pax River, mm -hmm. and uh, a woman picked me up in New Jersey, and we got to chatting, and she was on her way to Baltimore to meet her husband, and he had gone to Baltimore to interview for a job at Westinghouse. <coughs> Excuse me. And he was getting out of the Air Force, so he, it was his last month or something like that, or he mm -hmm. was job shopping. And uh, she told me that he was at Wright Pat, and he was in flight test. And I said, well, that was interesting, because I'm a flight test engineer for the Navy, mm -hmm. but I'm going in the Air Force. And I said, well, who is his boss? And it, it was Major Dick Lathrop, and he was in flight test in Building 30. And so I called him, and I told him a little bit, and he said, well, send me your resume, and uh, I'll study it over, and we'll see what we can do. Uh, so. After he did that, he agreed that 
I could take the lieutenant's job that he was getting out of the Air Force. <laughs> and of course, this all came by accident by getting picked up by his wife. Yep. <clears throat> and so then I got activated and went up to Samson and took all these tests and uh, got interviewed by the placement team and they decided I could go to communication officer school or uh, what was the other one? Electronics officer. Mm -hmm. One was at Scott and the other one was in Louisiana, I think. At any rate, um, I thank them for their offer to consider me for those jobs, but I said, I already have a job. Mm -hmm. And I know, Lieutenant, you don't understand how this works, you know. We review your past and present and aptitudes and all of that, and then where the Air Force needs people, and we give you a choice so you could fill some of these vacancies. And I said, no, you don't understand. I already have a job. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so finally, we were at loggerheads, and I <clears throat> just contacted the people at headquarters, USAF personnel assignments, and uh, told them the story and how we could save the Air Force a lot of money by not sending me to a tech school and just send me right to Wright Pat, mm -hmm. which they did. So that's how I got here. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> so when you got to Wright Pat, uh, what was uh, what was your job then? What was your what, what did you work on? Uh, flight test instrumentation. Same thing I was doing to the Navy. Okay. All right. Yeah. And was it over here on area on the area B side or no C? On, on Airy C, okay, yeah. all right. So uh, was, the, was the flight line still open over on this side at that time? Or yes. It? Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. And I was talking with Mike earlier about the drop zone and on Huffman Prairie. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I mentioned to, to Mike that uh, one of my colleagues here was Harvey Anderson and wound up from the family standpoint, I bought a Volkswagen minibus from Harvey. Um, but from my standpoint, I found it interesting because he worked with the Wright brothers on Huffman Prairie. Wow. And uh, every once in a while, he would talk about the old days, but I. He didn't brag about it or anything. We mm -hmm. just had a good time. Yeah. And you had a very precarious uh, type of flight testing um, in a B-17. Uh, is that correct? Uh, why did you have to read that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, I forget who it was. It might have been Honeywell, but it was one of the electronics firms that was working with Boeing uh, to develop a spin recovery subsystem. 
Mm-hmm. So the idea was, uh, as far as flight testing is concerned, uh, was to pick a very strong airplane. So the strongest one that was suitable was a B-17. And so the equipment was installed in that. And uh, the test pattern was go up to 30,000 feet, put it into a spin over the drop zone, not over the city, mm-hmm. uh, and see if this thing would work. You know? Will it pull it itself out of the spin? Uh, but it wasn't working very well. And so the pilots would do their best to pull it out of the spin, which wasn't easy. But thankfully, the B-17 being a strong airplane, it didn't pull the wings off. And the only problem was when they pulled out, uh, my eyes went up and was watching, but my stomach kept going down. <laughs> and uh, I was in the bombardier's position in the nose of the 17. So mm-hmm. when it was into a spin, uh, I was fine. It was just the world that was turning around. Right. And uh, when I went home for lunch, because we lived real close, uh, my wife said, why are you green? Yeah, that was my worst test experience. Yeah. Uh, so y- later on, you worked in, in Skybolt, uh, which is a program you mentioned a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. uh, being a joint program with the English. Um, <clears throat> where were you at? Were you still at Wright Pat when you started working on Skybolt, or had you moved somewhere else by that time? It was, it was still at Wright Pat. Okay, all right. Yeah. So and tell us a little bit about your experience with Skybolt. Uh, well, do you know anything about Skybolt history? So I know that Skybolt was a was a ballistic missile that was be launched from a B fifty two, which which is interesting because we're currently have a program going on called Arrow that is also a missile that's being launched from B fifty two and still the same bomber. Um, so that's that's pretty much all I know about it. But probably. The grandson of the first pilot for that B-52 is now the pilot. Right? <laughs> Likely so, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we the test range was the Atlantic Missile Range, and <clears throat> they didn't use the drop zone for that. <laughs> okay. um, so. We did a lot of operations uh, out of Patrick Air Force Base, and mm-hmm. our main base down there was at Eglin. So I did a lot of commuting in those days, <clears throat> working most of the week in Florida, and, but still living here. Mm-hmm. Um, but likewise, it was very meaningful to me because I was learning a lot. Uh, and that was one of the blessings of all the assignments that I had was 
learning new things, working with carrier aircraft and Air Force aircraft and uh, really kept my interest going. How many flight tests of Skybolt were you involved in? And there was a significant one at the at the end of it, right? Yeah. Well, I remember seeing some uh, films that were taking taken um, on earlier tests of pre predecessors to Skybolt. There were a number of different kinds of. Uh, air-launched missiles. Mm -hmm. um, many of them were catastrophic. <clears throat> but the Skybolt was very successful in our missions. Uh, however, just as we were f finishing the last of the Test at Atlantic Missile Range um, that were very successful. The president was negotiating with the Brits, uh, and I'm not sure which other country was involved. Uh, but at any rate, the negotiations were at the diplomatic and uh, presidential level from the U.S. standpoint. And the idea was to see if they could slow down the path to what they called mutual assured destructions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mad. Uh, and part of the deal uh, from the American side uh, was to cancel a Skybolt. So that was the end of my Skybolt story. You came back from a very successful test, yes. literally touched, touched down in the U.S. Oh, yeah. It, uh, it went very successful. There, was, mm -hmm. there were three launches that I was at from Florida. And uh, the first two were eh, partially successful. The third one was absolutely successful. And then the president announced that because of the cost and the lack of performance, they were going to cancel it. Yeah. So that was the U.S. part of the deal. Which is uh, often the, the mm -hmm. case in, in a lot of programs that the Air mm -hmm. Force works on. People put years of their life into it and... You know, but then uh, the leadership decides to go in a different direction. So, that um, excuse me. That reinforced my having learned that war is an instrument of foreign policy, and preventing a war is also an instrument of foreign policy. So it all comes down to the policymakers, and we just work for them. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, 
I also heard that you were involved in matrix management, or so the development or the institution of matrix management, which of course is a still a system that we use today mm-hmm. uh, to provide you know contracting and engineering and uh, financial management support to the program offices. So, yeah. just interested in how that developed and and how uh, how that came to be. Well, when I <clears throat> when I was here early on. Uh, there was sort of a competition between the folks in Area C and the folks in Area B. And part of that competition was uh, starting at college graduates, the labs trying to hire the best of the engineers and scientists that they could get their hands on mm-hmm. and uh, it was difficult for the folks here flight test to recruit uh, the kind of people they would like to have yeah uh, so that's how it fit with this uh, hitchhiking and finding out about flight test that was Air Force flight test. Um, is that what you meant? Yeah. Um, but back to um, you were basically given uh, direction to, to go find out how the motor companies up in Detroit are oh. doing ma- matrix engineering? Uh, oh yeah. Or matrix management? Yeah. So this was prior, to, of course, to the matrix system, and that refers back to the point I mentioned about the competition for engineering talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed like the matrix idea would work because we could make use of the engineering talent that was in the labs by having people assigned to teams with the, what was then, I guess, AMC, uh, program managers. Mm-hmm. And out of that kind of grew the, the norm of putting together a, uh, an engineering team uh, for new programs on this matrix uh, principle. Mm-hmm. And so now, did you uh, did you learn something from the motor companies? Was there something yes. that... Yes, yes. As Mike mentioned, mm-hmm. um, I was in the doctoral program and my major was management. And so I was interested in this matrix approach, and <clears throat> went to Detroit to see how they did it, and um, interviewed people. That not not many people were using matrix except the motor companies. Okay. At that time, uh, and so came back home and talked to people and decided we'd give it a try. Yeah. And and here it is still mm-hmm. many years later, 
still being used. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we talked also about, uh, so later in your career you moved over to NATO and you did some work with the NATO AWACS program. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your experience there. How did, how did you find yourself to go work for NATO in the first place? I guess it was Skyboat. Um, we had some business in England, mm -hmm. and uh, there were three of us on the team that, that went to England to coordinate with the, the Brits, and we got permission to take some leave afterwards and went to the continent and uh, decided that was very nice place to raise a family and in Holland and what we came back and called it the land of windmills and wooden shoes. But you took you took a job opportunity to Holland that you didn't well, have to, right? Um, right. They're, and that's they're, eventually what led to, to Belgium. Right. So yeah, I I interviewed well I went to Washington and interviewed with the representative from the Shape Technical Center at the Pentagon and then they invited me to, to go over and interview in Europe and and I got the offer job offer and uh, and uh, I met uh, Iglet Colonel Iglet mm -hmm. oh Colonel at the time became General Higlett, but yeah, he he visited the uh, NATO mm -hmm. and <clears throat> talked to him about possibly coming back and working in his organization, and uh, that worked out. So he was running the American side of the NATO AWACS program, right? right. Okay, yeah. And so, uh, so the the NATO AWACS that was a program where the the aircraft were shared amongst the the NATO nations, correct? Is that it? Um, not all the NATO nations. No. Okay. It, it started at the joint program with the Brits, and uh, they had another version of the air, uh, airborne early warning system mm -hmm. called Blue Steel, I think it was. <clears throat> and finally they agreed to, to join the American side and stop their Blue Steel program. Um, it's interesting that AWACS as a capability is, is still something that is so essential that, you know, that now we're looking to the wedge tail mm -hmm. eventually to kind of replace it, you know, because mm -hmm. they've pretty much flown the wings off the AWACS aircraft now after all these years, um, yeah. but still an important capability for the warfighter to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Even, even though we have a lot more capability with satellites yep. than we did when we first had AWACS, there wasn't much we could do with satellites as far as intelligence information. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of interesting, you know, that um, that legacy keeps coming back, all right? So a lot of the programs that you've worked on 
are still uh, still having an impact now, years later. Um, so, so that kind of brings us to the end of our time. Uh, is there anything that I forgot to ask you about, or anything that you'd like to add about your uh, about your time uh, working with the Air Force? Uh, well, I want certainly to leave the impression that um, it was very educational for me, and it was very enjoyable, except for the B-17 flight. Yeah. All right. Can well, I, sir? Uh, can I throw yeah, in absolutely. Um, a prompt, maybe? Um, mm -hmm. uh, we, we mentioned it out with the general, but uh, it might be uh, interesting to talk about your time with your uh, office mate who was um, part of the Raider story. Yeah, Tongsheng Lu. Uh, have you read or did you see the movie 30 Seconds Over Tokyo? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Well, he was the one that guided uh, the crew uh, that bailed out over China mm -hmm. and, and got them out safely. And <clears throat> when he did that, he was a student uh, studying engineering. And because of his contact uh, with Ted Lawson, uh, eventually, I don't know how he made the decision, but decided to come to the States and finish his studies. And uh, as <clears throat> we were both going to school at Ohio State part-time, um, and it happened that he was also assigned to flight tests, so we were office mates for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time, and part of the time, we were both going to school. But, yeah. And I, he, he would tell us some stories once in a while. Yeah. About helping the Raiders get out of, yeah. of, of China? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that you mentioned last night that I'd forgotten about, and that is um, Sputnik. Uh, oh, well, yeah, that relates to the drop zone and tracking the Sputniks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Since we here at Wright Pat uh, had one of the tracking ranges, uh, we cooperated with the other tracking ranges, the, the Navy and the Air Force particularly, uh, trying to develop <coughs> the uh, orbital patterns of the satellites. And so that might work at night. And if we had a clear night, we had to go out in the drop zone and get our uh, theodolites, because mm -hmm. we had a recording theodolites. Um, and 
we see if we could track that dim star as it went around every 90 minutes. So did you try to look for it visually, or is that? Yeah, we uh, we pretty much knew it was a 90-minute circuit. Okay. Um, so once we acquired it and we knew the time, then the next time around we knew what to look for. And, uh, I see. And then... <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it, it was just a dot of light on 35 millimeter film, you know. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I didn't get involved with with reading the film, um, but that's how we contributed. There were other people tracking as well, but. Mm -hmm. uh, as a team here, we contributed to the development of the orbital data. Right. That's interesting. Um, I, I'm going to ask you one other thing. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people talk about like kind of generationally, 9/11 being like a seminal event in their development, and it's it's one of those things that. You know, when people ask you where you were at when you learned about it, you remember that, you know. And and I would imagine you, you were a young man or a boy when uh, when Pearl Harbor happened. Um, do you recall that? Do you recall kind of where you were at when you learned about it and, and, and how that struck you? Yeah. I lived at 31 Gray Street in Newark, New Jersey. And I went to... St. Rose of Lima School, and I remember one Sunday after church, a lot of people talking about something that I didn't quite understand. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I got home, Gabriel Heater was talking on the radio. You're too young to know about Gabriel here. <laughs> he was a commentator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it was quite a surprise, although I guess it didn't surprise their intelligence people, but uh, politically it was a surprise. Yeah. 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 And then you fast forward to, you know, 9-11, many of the same kind of sympathies, uh, and the outpouring of of the need to serve, you know, for a mm -hmm. lot of people. Um, I know that struck that generation in World War II and, and it reoccurred again in 9-11. So. Yeah. Yeah. Especially after, it seemed to me that the first incident was considered an accident. But then as the information came out, it turned out, of course, that it was intentional. Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah. So again, sir, thanks for joining us today on uh, Leadership Log. We really appreciate your time and helping us kind of understand a little bit of the predecessor organization and, and the way that, you know, for each of us, the impact that we make every day could have a legacy that lives long beyond us. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, help us. Uh, thank you for helping us understand that. Well, thank you for inviting me and for your hospitality. All right. Thank you.